Ready or not, here we come. It's the very first episode of Minnesota Opera's first podcast, The Score. On this week's episode, Black people talking about opera. What is this? Who are these people? And why? All these questions answered and more. Also, there's a new diversity officer at the Metropolitan Opera. Let's celebrate her and pray for her. Plus, we'll touch on recent controversies in Paris and Indiana, and as always, send you into the weekend with a PB&J, a moment of pure black joy. You know what time it is. It's time to check the score. Let's do it to it. It's episode one of the score. Wait, that's the one I was going for. <laughs> I was like, what is that? What is that? Anyway, we're off to a great start. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. I've forgotten what sounds sound like. <laughs> we're so excited to be here. Um, this is The Score. This is Minnesota Opera's first podcast. Um, and we are three black arts administrators, arts aficionados, friends, artists. And we are here to really amplify Black, Indigenous, people of color, queer, trans, non-binary, everybody else's voices, <laughs> and bring them into the tent um, of classical music and opera. And we're so happy to have you all here. My name is Rocky Jones. I am the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Director at Minnesota Opera. My name is Paige Reynolds. I'm the Civic Engagement Manager at Minnesota Opera. And I'm Lee Bynum. I am the Vice President for Impact, also at Minnesota Opera. Well, hi, y'all. How are y'all doing today? Not too bad. A rare day without snow. It's a, it's a good one so far. I mean, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so the snow is melting here, so that's better than before. <laughs> it's so, it's it, it's just mind-boggling when we get to this, like, part of the year, because it, it just sure. feels like it's always, it's never going to end. Like, yeah. the snow will always be here, it will always be cold. <laughs> but of course, I mean, it's late February, so we've got, like, a couple of blizzards left in us. So. Absolutely. Let's not speak yeah. too soon. <laughs> Yay. I know we're not done yet. <laughs> so people are probably wondering, like, what is this? Who are these people? Why are these black folks sitting here, like, talking about <laughs> opera, classical music? What's going on? <laughs> um, and so, you know, we just thought, like, at first, the first thing, like, why don't we just sort of introduce ourselves and just sort of what the score is and what we're doing here? So, you know, Lee, I'll, I'll pass it over to you. Why, thank you. Um, You're welcome. Yes, yes. Lee Bynum again. Um, I'm very new in the role. I only was hired last fall. I started in October. And prior to that, I spent quite a bit of time working in philanthropy and higher ed. But I'm so excited to be back with my first love, classical music. I grew up in Virginia, right outside of Richmond. Um, and I spent a lot of my childhood in orchestras and theaters and also dabbling a bit in opera and, and a little bit in dance. You really couldn't tell if you ever saw me move now, but I 
I really did take <laughs> dance class for several years. Just didn't take. Um, I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're fabulous. Uh, yeah. Let's go with Graceful that. Graceful as a swan. <laughs> Graceful, yeah. You know. <laughs> swan, you know, I pigeon. have been. Well, you all know I have been on this health cook lady lately, so I've been taking these dance classes on YouTube and. My almost 40-year-old body does not move the same way. So. <laughs> so I feel you. I feel you. Yeah, we should definitely <laughs> devote a whole podcast one day to things that bodies do when they hit 40. Um, so <laughs> mm-hmm. I actually just had a, a birthday last week. Um, oh, now yeah. Aquarius. Uh, certainly. The, the age of Aquarius. I'm an Aquarian and my rising is Aquarian and my moon is Aquarian. Um, it's okay. a... It's a whole, it's a whole experience, really. Um, not that our audience is that interested in that part, but it might be useful context later if I start well, saying like, series of non sequiturs. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like, like you're like triple weirdo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you say something real off the wall, we'll just be like, no, that's the triple Aquarius talking. It's fine. <laughs> well, yeah, we definitely might have to go with it from time to time. Um, so I'm moving to. Minnesota in exactly two weeks, two weeks from today. Very excited. I've been here in Harlem for quite some time. I moved to Harlem in the late 90s for college and fell in love with it. And I've been here ever since with a few fairly brief year-long stints abroad, most notably in Hong Kong, which was one of my all-time absolute favorite experiences. Um, but outside of, of this work that I've described, we've also been working in the EDI side of the performing arts since around 2001. I started a nonprofit theater company with a group of friends as a college student, and it was really focused on what at the time was called multicultural theater. Um, now I think it's just called theater, which is a, a really nice thing. And. <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious. Okay. Made a little bit of movement in that area. Um, And since 2015, I've been working with a group called the Dream Unfinished Orchestra, which is an activist orchestra here in New York, which was the piece that got me again in classical music, really thinking about these issues. And maybe a couple of years ago, I started thinking about I would love to work for an opera company doing progressive work around inclusion, access, equity, and diversity. And when I saw this position come up last summer, I thought, this is exactly what I want to be doing. And honestly, given the, the really trying time that the Twin Cities has had since the murder mm. of Mr. Floyd, I've also mm-hmm. felt like this is where I wanted to do the work. I, I want to be where people are really thinking about how do we have a different kind of society? than we have now. And I think classical music is an extraordinary untapped tool to do that work. So I'm super happy to be here. I I love working with the two of you as well as our other colleagues. And it's just been a really tremendous experience being welcomed to the Minnesota Opera family. So thanks, everybody. Well, we are blessed. (laughs) Blessed. (laughs) You are here with us. (laughs) Snaps. Snaps for you. Yes, yes, yes. I guess I'll introduce myself. So I'm Paige. I use she, her, and they, them pronouns. Yes. Oh, gosh. I came to Minnesota Opera in 2018 now. 
Wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Time just flies. It's so crazy. What in the world? Yeah. (laughs) It just seems like just, okay. Keep going. I was was saying it so slowly because I thought about it and I was like, no, surely. Surely I'm wrong. Surely I'm wrong. No, no. no, Since 2018 now. I think it's just the 2020 of it all. Like, it still feels like I'm just like sitting here and it's March 2020. Facts. And it's like, no, honey, it is March 2021. A whole year just evaporated. So, yeah, since. Since 2018, and before that, I came to the Twin Cities um, on a fellowship, actually, with with Children's Theater. I had just graduated from Howard University uh, about a year before, and yeah, woo-woo, H-U, you know, shout out to the bison out there, what's up, fam? Um, In case you don't know, we're real extra. Um, (laughs) But um, I love it. I I loved um, that experience at Howard as a theater arts administration major, but... um, Along with theater, one of my loves has always been music. I was always a choir kid and a theater kid. I was actually a choir kid before I was a theater kid. And music just played throughout my home growing Mm. up of Mm -hmm. every genre. Mm -hmm. I I once commented to a friend that like, you know how some families or like some kids grow up on like children's music? Mm -hmm. That was not a thing. We just listened to what our parents (laughs) listened to. There was no (laughs) children's music. There was we're listening to gospel, to rock, to grunge, to uh, funk, to spirituals, everything. Um, Everything. And so I just grew up with an appreciation for it all and when it came time for like college and stuff, it was really between voice or uh, theater. And I still hold a love for both, absolutely. (laughs) But I did choose theater and it's just um, funny to me that like I ended up coming back right around to (laughs) classical music. (laughs) Funny how that works. (laughs) Right, real funny how that works. Like, Universe was just like, okay, so you're not going to major in voice? We're going to make sure we put music back in your life in some way. So Absolutely. It's funny how things work. thank goodness for it. Yeah, for real, for real. I'm I'm grateful for it. Um, So, yeah, now I've been in the Twin Cities for... Uh, about three and a half years now overall and I love my role at Minnesota Opera I also do some uh, arts-based community organizing outside of that I recently became a doula Um, yes yeah so you girls were multifaceted over here (laughs) at least I try to be (laughs) well I guess I'll go next um, my name is Rocky Jones, and I am originally from the Washington, D.C. area. I also grew up um, in the suburbs uh, in Virginia, much like Lee. Um, and my parents went to Howard, <laughs> much like Paige. Um, so I don't know. I feel like I'm going to um, you know, end up sort of repeating a lot of the same things that both of you have said. But you know, I grew up just super theater nerd, mm-hmm. drama kid, like... All I wanted to do, my sister actually um, was an actress, my older sister. And I remember, you know, being a kid and just wanting to do everything that she did. 
So yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first second I the first second I could, I was up on a stage singing, dancing, all of that stuff. And also um, taking a lot of music classes. I, I remember distinctly, I think I was in second grade and um, my mother walked by my room and I was just in my room by myself playing with my stuffed animals, like singing to them. And she comes running in and she's like, my baby can sing! My baby can sing! <laughs> <laughs> That's too and, cute. So, and so from that moment on, I was in voice lessons after school all the time. And so that led me um, to classical music. Um, and so, uh, you know, I went to college in New York City uh, really, you know, wanting to focus on theater. Um, afterwards, I moved back to the D.C. area, ended up in a kind of not really sure what direction I wanted to go in. Um, but I know that I had um, experienced my first heartbreak and mm-hmm. discovered whiskey and cigarettes <laughs> and my guitar. <laughs> and so I was in bands, um, just sort of playing in coffee shops up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, and all that, you know, led me to... Um, you know, my now husband, who is a native Minnesotan, <laughs> and um, brought me here. Um, and as I was really trying to figure out, like, what, what my next direction was, I had um, taken a brief, well, brief, seven-year detour into um, design. And I really, really missed having music um, mm. being a, a, as part of uh, my daily practice. So... When I found um, a position at the opera, I jumped on it and eventually worked my way up to communications manager. So I was doing a lot of the um, video uh, work here at the opera. Um, But around the same time, um, we were really starting to have conversations, thinking about talking about um, equity, diversity, and inclusion issues in the opera industry and classical music as a whole. And so I really jumped on that because, you know, for me, theater and music for my entire life have been really those things that have, you know, even at times just really saved my life Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. made me feel really connected um, to my friends, my family, the world uh, in general. And, you know, it's always been really important to me um, to be able to open up these doors and these avenues to people who might not necessarily feel like, you know, classical music is for them. And so I was really excited to start having these conversations. Um, I joined um, our, you know, what was then in 2016, our new diversity council, um, ended up um, taking over as chair and um with Paige and um, a couple of other folks really developing um, what became our um, charter, our diversity charter, where we as a company um, committed ourselves to creating art and creating spaces through an anti-racist and anti-oppressive lens, which especially here in Minnesota after 2020 that we have had here in the Twin Cities (laughs) in particular, um, is more important than ever. And so now we've got Lee here, we've got Paige in this civic engagement 
manager position and we're doing it and we're here and we're ready to spread this message with this podcast and welcome everybody into our spaces of refuge and healing and hope and I'm really excited. <laughs> Likewise. Yes. Really excited. I think um, that just at this time to have these spaces where mm-hmm. we can, you know, have some joy, some laughter, some good mm-hmm. times, but also have good real talk Yeah, is really mm-hmm. important. That just feels feels good right now. I mean, it's already, you know, tough enough dealing with the cornucopia of issues that are just (laughs) you know constantly with us right now but you know to then act like it's not happening on top of that would be more difficult even so i'm just super grateful for this space and real excited for what we're gonna get into for sure and you know i think historically art has been a way that people have dealt with these sort of issues right like these deep, intractable issues that are facing so many communities, the art is an amazing outlet, both to to address them, to sort of purge the feelings you have, and then also to imagine a different kind of a world, right? And I think just given everything that we saw in the last couple of years, I personally felt like it made sense to shift from philanthropy to going back into the arts, right? And you think of philanthropy as a space that is fundamentally designed to solve problems. And I think that is, that is not an untrue statement, right? But because the currency of philanthropy is money, it brings its own challenges, right? Like mm-hmm. there is a tremendous responsibility in that space that is also kind of a, a political responsibility. And it's, it's not a space of creation, right? And as we move through last year, and honestly, the everything that happened since November of 2016, I was thinking more and more, what does it look like to do something, to do something for real? And, and given my interest in skill sets, like it, coming to an organization like this was a, a no-brainer for me. Um, it was complicated because there are not a lot of institutions like the one for which we work, but the minute I identified this opportunity, I, I knew that there was a lot of really fantastic work that we'd be able to do together. So I, I also am extremely grateful um, for both of you and for our other colleagues. This is like a very interesting love fest. And, and people who don't work at Minnesota Opera, hopefully they will all now think, oh my God, I really want to work there. This sounds awesome. But it, it really has been such a, a positive experience to be able to have a lot of honest conversations with what the art looks like in a moment like this well you know i will say though that as much as you know this has been a love fest you know the conversations that we're having now were not the conversations that we were having four years ago i'm sure and you know it took you know quite a bit of work to get here um which i'm really excited about you know especially as a black person Mm -hmm. in this space being able to have the freedom um, to really delve into these topics and to have the support of our organization is it, it's it's just kind of a godsend. And so, you know, my hope really is 
is as we move forward, um, being able to bring more people into the space and meet more artists and all of those, you know, folks who are out here really just like changing the game um, and allowing for more of us to be in this space um, and to have those conversations about how and why. Um, I, it's just... Today, I'm just feeling so optimistic and excited. I'm a Sagittarian, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the... Well, well, you're a Sagittarius too, Paige, so we'll, we'll be optimists together. True, true. <laughs> I like to think all... of it as radical optimism. There you go. Oh, I love that. I, I love that. <laughs> but I'm also a Gemini rising, so I, will ch- I can change on a dime. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was raised by two Sagittarians, so I am I am very familiar with your people, and I am prepared for everything that will bring. You were raised by two Sagittarians. Yeah. So funnily enough, there are six people in my immediate family and only four birthdays. My parents had the same birthday a year apart, and my mom told me this really funny story when she met my dad, and they were having a conversation. And he asked her when her birthday was, and she was like, November 24th. And he was like, oh, that's mine too. And then she was like, of course I didn't believe him. It just sounded like something. <laughs> um, but <laughs> my sisters are identical twins, so of course they have the same birthday. And they are also Howard alumni. So there is a lot of Howard, a lot of Sagittarius, and a lot of Aquarius happening on this one podcast. Although I guess I'm all of the Aquarius. But I'm a lot of people. I, I actually also have an Aquarius moon. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Let the go. weirdness begin. <laughs> Ooh, it's going to get weird. <laughs> <laughs> So we're back. And so every episode, we're going to start off with sort of, for lack of a better term, a hot topics segment. (laughs) Please don't sue us, the view or the read or any of those places. I'm sure we will come up with a brilliant name for this segment. Um, But we just want to highlight some of the issues, topics, big stories Um, that are going on in the world of classical music that are affecting um, people of color, black people, indigenous people, queer folks, everybody. Um, So this week we want to talk about the Metropolitan Opera in New York, which is the largest performing arts institution in the country. And they have hired a new diversity officer, Miss Marcia Sells. Yay. Who, Yay. Yes, good for her. Where? Let's also pray for her, but good for her. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first uh, position of its kind at the Met, which is, you know, the gold standard um, for opera companies here in the U.S., for performing arts companies, really, here in the, in the mm-hmm. U.S. And so that's a really exciting bit of news, a really daunting yeah. bit of news, because yeah. like she's, she's got a lot to deal with um, after the last couple of years of, yeah. of goings-on at the Met. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, Lee, I'll, I'll ask you, what, what are your thoughts about uh, Miss Marcia Sells? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm super I'm super excited about her her appointment. Um, one, the that they have this position at all. Um, so, right before I started at Minnesota Opera, the position 
went online and um, the the um, consultant reached out to me to sort of gauge my interest because I think the the number of folks who are senior who are working in this space, especially EDI and classical music, it's not huge, right? So I, I would imagine that um, there are a lot of people who got that call. And, you know, even if I hadn't already taken this particular position, it was something that sounded incredibly daunting, right? The Between the reputation of the organization, which is so outsized in the space, and also the resources that it has and everything that accords in terms of how people look to it. I knew this would be very, very complicated, right? There's not much that can happen at the Met that doesn't end under someone's microscope, right? But at the same time, Ms. Sells is uniquely positioned, I think, to be able to do really extraordinary work in this space. Um, for I mean, instance, her, her resume alone is just crazy. I mean, that that's what I'm saying, right? She's the, <laughs> the former dean of students at Harvard Law, which must have been its own very heavy lift in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, I mean, an as, assistant district attorney in Brooklyn. Absolutely. She's probably seen some things. <laughs> I mean, I, just, <laughs> I, I, I can only imagine. <laughs> and, <laughs> unflappable, resilient, tenacious, you know, these are all understatements, even without having met her, right? And I feel like um, looking to who can be good mentors for all of us for the kind of work we want to do, I, I already anticipate that she will be, you know, a, a shining star in the field. And I think her appointment, along with Afton Battle um, at Fort Worth Opera as their executive director in a field where we don't see a lot of women and we certainly don't see a lot of black women having that particular opportunity. I, I think it's so incredibly exciting, right? And I think it Absolutely. means that there's a, a different kind of work as a field that we can do. But, I, but what do you all think about it? How did the news strike you considering that you were already in this space at the time she was appointed? Yeah, my first reaction was good for the Met, good for her, and I hope she has a team behind her because, I mean, I think just one of the things that I've experienced is that it's such an important um, and great step to hire folks like her, and it's another thing for them to actually be able to implement change. And, you know, that's that can be the, the harder part, the actual... Um, changing of organizational culture and reprioritization of your values and, you know, what you want to accomplish. So good first step. And I hope that, you know, she continues to to be supported. To, you know, to echo your sentiments, you know, I I felt, you know, immense joy and excitement. Um, But I also felt like a little bit of trepidation because, yeah, you really do need to have those resources, have that support yeah. in order to get anywhere in this work. And, you know, an institution that is just sort of as huge and lauded as mm-hmm. the men, you know, they have, you know, a quote unquote, you know, reputation um, to uphold. And, you know, I know that like as a, you know, black queer man, you know, coming into this role at Minnesota Opera, I felt a lot of pressure. And so I wondered mm-hmm. if she felt or if she feels rather that that same kind of pressure um, to really 
come in and, you know, clean house and make mm. those changes that mm. need to be made and have those mm. tough conversations that need to be had. And it can be like such a scary, daunting thing if you don't feel like, you know, you have a safe place to land um, at the end of the day. And so I just wish that for her that, you know, I obviously do not know the inner workings of the Met. Um, <laughs> but I do hope that like she's being given, um, you know, a wide berth to make decisions um, mm-hmm to walk into, you know, those folks' offices who need to, you know, who need to be told a couple of things. For sure. (laughs) For sure. And being able to feel safe to to have those conversations and do those things. But I would imagine, given her background, um, (laughs) that she could walk into any space and say whatever she wants. (laughs) And and I think that, you know, Miss Sells, if you're listening, I hope you are. You have an open invitation here on the score. And also Come on the pod, come on the pod. Yeah. <laughs> come talk and to us. A tremendous, <laughs> tremendous amount of support um, from here across the country. I, we are mm-hmm. certainly rooting for you and as Rocky said, also praying for you because it it is not it is not easy. It is not easy work and it's also a, a super complicated transition, even coming out of a a space where you're doing a lot of this work, you know, classical music has its own very specific intentional history around exclusion and it mirrors that of academe, but they're not completely the same, right? I I think the the fact that Mm -hmm. academia has been engaged in a very real legal conversation around how to make diversity happen since the late 70s puts it in a, a different place right so I, I think you know this this is not going to be without challenges but you know this is also work that needs to happen and a lot of people are very supportive of yeah speaking of I mean that support and hoping she has a wide enough purview to enact some change it was encouraging to me to see that um that the board and working with the board will fall mm-hmm. under um her responsibilities yeah. um that can be a place where, you know, you can get a lot of support or it could be the mm-hmm. hardest to change or both. <laughs> a mix of both a lot of the time, honestly. <laughs> and and just that, you know, within her uh, first several, I guess, months or however long it would take with the institution as big as the Met, yeah. but coming up with those new plans for artistic planning and for engagement, and it seems like there's a pretty you know, wide uh, plate of things to work with Mm -hmm. that they're giving her. So that was encouraging to see for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but, you know, I just imagine, like, it's hard enough at our little (laughs) (laughs) Midwestern (laughs) opera company (laughs) to get all that stuff done. I can only imagine, you know, a space as big as the Met. Um, But, you know, more power to her. Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. More power and than I all can... of us. Well, you know, <laughs> there you go. I know that's great. <laughs> I'll take some <you> that. <laughs> but, you know, I can't wait to see what she does. I can't see, I, you know, but not not to add any more pressure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I just, I'm just looking forward to it because, you know, everything that happens at the Met has a tendency to trickle down um, to all of us. And so I'm just, I'm excited. Well, I'll tell you what I hope trickles. I know that the Met has programmed um, Fire Shut Up In My Bones, which is Charles Blow's opera. And I 
love Charles Below. I have an absolute obsession with everything that he does. And um, Jesse Montgomery's new opera as well. And I hope some of that trickles, right? You don't see a lot of places programming multiple pieces by composers of color in the same season or even in the same stretch of two or three years. So that to me is super exciting. And, you know, I'm, I'm sad I'll be leaving New York at the moment when something like that is happening, but I'm not sad that I'm leaving New York at the same time. <laughs> it was time. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm excited about those productions and to see how the Met rethinks access to sure. to that work, especially. I mean, I've I've said it, I've heard others say it. One thing about the pandemic is that a lot of folks have been forced to put their content online and yeah. make it more yeah. accessible than ever before. That has yeah. certainly been true with the Met. I thought I would not get to see Porgy and Bess, that latest production. <laughs> I just thought that <laughs> I had missed that train and, and yo, that was it. Like, too bad. Um, <laughs> but they showed it several times they streaming sure for free. And so I did get to see that and several others. And I remember just sharing it with friends and family mm -hmm. that that was mm -hmm. even available. Uh, Black History Month recently too. I think they did mm -hmm. two weeks of at least two weeks of uh, free streaming of operas with uh, black leads, um, mm -hmm. black principal ar artists. And I remember sharing it and it's not like what I post on social media is that popular, but like, it's not like, <laughs> but lots of people were just like, oh, this seems cool and like reposted it and liked it and all of that stuff. And so I was like, see, we're interested. We want to know <laughs> about these things. It's a lot of the time the access that For sure. is a problem. Yeah, absolutely. The The interest is there. You know, I feel like it cannot be overstated. The interest that Black people have in Black excellence in mm -hmm. any Period. permutation, you know <laughs> what I mean? I, I mean, we've talked about this before, but like I remember, you know, Tiger Woods' prayers to him after his accident yesterday. Tiger yeah, Woods yeah. first coming around and the Williams sisters and black people showing an interest in tennis and golf that I hadn't seen in my lifetime, right? And same thing with Gabby Douglas and Simone Biles, right? Suddenly mm -hmm. black people own yeah. talking about gymnastics and I feel like we're just another black figure skater away from all kinds of memes. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember in the late 90s, you know, was that when Tiger Woods... I feel like yeah, it, right? I think so. that's right, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my dad had never, I had never seen him watch golf, play golf, <laughs> heard him say a word about golf. And then now all this is still, to this day, like, he'll call me up, like, did you see Tiger this weekend? You saw Tiger this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel like with tennis now, you really won't be able to tell us nothing oh, with absolutely. Naomi Osaka. Naomi, absolutely. Yes, I love her. I was like, you can't tell us nothing. Tennis is ours now. It's just what it is. Like, <laughs> I don't know who actually started tennis, but we black people now believe it was us. And, we <laughs> and, you know, and I think, you know, there are a lot of people who don't necessarily realize that black people have been contributing in major ways um, yeah. to opera and classical music since yeah. the beginning, yeah. you know, yeah. and, you know, 
feel free to go onto Minnesota Opera's Instagram because we've been highlighting <laughs> all those people all throughout Black History Month. <laughs> That's me plugging. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, amazing, amazing singers and composers, Jesse Norman, Leontine Price, all of these incredible people that we have to look up to. And I'm just so excited, you know, that we have this opportunity now, especially, you know, with Miss Cells at the mm-hmm. Met, with us in our positions here in Minnesota, with all the people who, all the Black people who are now finding themselves in opera companies, Afton Battle, mm-hmm. all of these, you know, EDI positions that are opening up, like what the future of this could look like who is yeah. going to be yeah. the serena williams of opera yeah. who's going to be the tiger woods yeah. and like it's just it feels like a whole new world is opening up yeah oh absolutely and and while we're plugging the social media i'll encourage everybody to check out some of the composers we've been featuring we've really thought about giving people the laurels they deserve while they're still here so there have mm-hmm. been a number of living composers the aforementioned jesse montgomery um Taishan, Sori, Inkiru Okoye, Courtney Bryan, that we have been highlighting their work as well and, and support them, show them some love and let them know how appreciated their work is now while they are still here to hear about it. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fascinating, illuminating conversation. <laughs> I'm done? sure we will have, you know, much more um, in the coming weeks. Um, more music, more composers, more singers, more opera, more black excellence to share <laughs> <laughs> with everyone. And I know we keep saying it because it's our first episode, but I'm so excited. Say it with me. Excited. <laughs> Cue the pointer sisters. Jump for my love. Doing the neutron dance. <laughs> We're back, everyone. And as we all know, um, the Black Lives Matter movement has become a worldwide movement um, here uh, on Earth. (laughs) 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 Not just here in the Twin Cities, but it has spread its its reach um, all the way over to Paris. And recently we got word that the Paris Opera has vowed to overhaul its recruiting practices um, and launch a greater drive towards diversity. And of course, there has been quite a bit of controversy, especially from right wingers who are accusing the opera's new general director, Alexander Neef of introducing sort of an American-style, quote-unquote, culture war (laughs) um, into its art scene, um, which is crazy, (laughs) of course. But uh, yeah, we just wanted to sort of bring this up because I think it, it really does mirror, you know, a lot of just some of the crazy things that we, especially as EDI professionals here in the States, um... A lot of the arguments that we are having to field, and especially on social media, um, just about how the per- push for diversity is really sort of alienating uh, white audiences. And so, you know, also tied into this is a very uh, controversial job listing that was recently put out into the world um, by the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Uh, The head of that institution has been, um, 
I guess he was fired or he quit. I'm not exactly sure. He resigned. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, a job listing for a new EDI director, manager, and basically saying that, like, yes, your job will be to recruit new audiences and staff members and donors um, of color while maintaining our quote-unquote core white audience. And so with both of these things in the news, I just wanted to turn it over to (laughs) y'all. What are some of (laughs) y'all's initial reactions to this? And uh, Paige, I'll I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, one of the things that immediately came to my mind to remember, especially with Paris Opera and uh, their efforts, which sound well-intentioned and the pushback that they're getting is, it's just a reminder that the what we've seen in the past few years here in America with like the rise of like far right wing, it, like white supremacists, white supremacy, basically white supremacist terrorism and there being like this mass mobilization of folks who hold those ideologies and online recruiting, even there's a problem with like the YouTube content just being saturated with white supremacists propaganda. Mm. Like that is a global problem Mm. right now. So (laughs) I think like we're, we're U S based. I, uh, assume that a lot of our listeners will be so I think it's important to put it in that global context like it's not just us right now like unfortunately like this is what happens when <laughs> we ignore it for so long and don't attack the core of the problem like it's a it's a global issue of just like sweeping like right wing fascism happening so this is not surprising at no, all not in the at, least sad, sad to say yeah, I mean, and especially when you think about America's origins and where people come from here, like you look at nations like France or like the UK or Italy and stuff like that. That's the origin story of this, like, <laughs> of like this global racism that we have now. Like, that is literally the origin. So it's 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 totally unsurprising to me. It, it's it's un it's both unsurprising and I feel like it it's like bringing out a lot about the context of blackness in in various places mm-hmm. right and and how it shifts based on who is there when we got there how we got there and then the level of disruption ma- uh, majority populations sort of project onto our being in the space right and and the thing that was so interesting to me about how folks are framing this is that um, Alexander Neef is coming to Paris very recently from Toronto, right? And, you know, the uh, Canadian opera company has has not necessarily been the most progressive one out there. So I was very curious about how he would be received there, given Toronto is one of the most diverse cities mm-hmm. on the planet, right? And And, you know, seeing what that would, seeing perhaps how that experience would have prepared him for this i'm i'm not super surprised right that i feel like people are probably just projecting a lot of what they have determined as like this american racial framework onto their own context 
which is much easier than actually delving into their own problematic practices. And, and that's what's so disappointing about, about the whole affair, honestly. But it's also a reminder of where we are, right? And however much we feel like certain progressive conversations are moving forward in classical music, there is still a lot of deep, deep entrenchment against what it is that we would like to see happening, you know? And I, I am very lucky to have my husband reminding me of, of this like on a daily basis, right? There are a lot of purists out there who will be threatened by any semblance of change. And I think this is, this is what we're seeing. Well, you know, it's fascinating because, you know, the Paris opera is around 350 years old. That's older than the United States of America. So <laughs> to turn around and call this like an American problem or like, you know, some sort of like American style revolution or whatever that's happening. It's like, no, honey, no, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's not what's happening here. Um, you know, and I think this like coupled with, you know, the situation in Indianapolis provides this sort of fascinating framework in that I think they're two sides of the same coin because like I I see sort of the Indianapolis thing as sort of, you know, I can just imagine somebody saying like, well, I mean, the, the thing is, is that we really do need to just sort of name what it is. Like it's an... <laughs> <laughs> it's important it's important to to name to be really honest about what we're doing because like our our core audience is white and we don't want mm -hmm. to scare them mm -hmm. away and so this person's <laughs> job is going to be making sure that those people aren't scared <laughs> yeah i think they're both uh examples of like say it, accidentally saying the quiet part out mm -hmm. loud. Or... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's also important to be clear that in both cases, it isn't just about keeping an audience comfortable or programming something that they like, whether it's in Indiana and their core white audience or whether <laughs> or whether it's in Paris like it's not just about keeping them comfortable what we're really fighting against is like keeping a dominant narrative that has been oppressive mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to people of color to disabled people to queer people yeah. to whoever so yeah. it's beyond just you know their comfort or them not feeling like right. every piece is going right. to make them feel guilty or oh this is white guilt like it's not right. it's not even about that like zoom out like it's about there's <laughs> it's about a whole uplifting and upholding a whole narrative and we're seeing right. where that has gotten us that has gotten us to the January yeah. 6th uh moments mm -hmm. we've yeah, gotten absolutely. us to absolutely the Derek Chauvin moments we so right yeah right just yeah. have to name that yeah it's another permutation of something we're seeing all over all over the world right now right and and I, I think anytime you're in a situation where the the actual mechanics of where the power sits and when that shifts, I, I think you see these moments of, of people sort of grasping, right, for anything yeah. they can, any way to hold on. You know, as we were talking about earlier, like there's so many spaces that used to be all white, where now you see all kinds of other folks being extremely dominant or at least being completely conversant in ways that we were not permitted to be 
not permitted to be in the past, mm-hmm. right? And I think that this is this is just another place yeah. where you're seeing that. You know, and even when we Oh, go, uh, ahead. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, and even when we create our own, too, unfortunately, mm-hmm. not yeah. just, you know, infiltrating white Ooh, spaces, child. but then <laughs> even when we build it ourselves, it's like, wait, but you weren't yeah. supposed to. The, you weren't <laughs> supposed to be reliant upon us. You're supposed to do what we were supposed to say you do. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's not what we what, what we meant when we said don't use our stuff. We didn't mean to go then build your own. <laughs> right. Boxer braids. <laughs> right. Oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, but, you know, I think about, like, you know, the work that we did here um last year in minnesota when we were um, creating our anti-racism charter and Mm -hmm. you know the pushback that we received was similar i mean i i feel like the voice the voices weren't Mm -hmm. dominant but like i remember having a conversation um with some other members of staff who had gone out and you know they were selling tickets fundraising whatnot and hearing back from patrons hearing back from a small minority of very vocal donors who are very Mm. sort of afraid of, you know, some of the things that, you know, this Guardian article about the Mm -hmm. the Paris opera had mentioned that they were afraid that there were, you know, parts of the repertoire that weren't, that were going to go away, that there were, you know, certain, you know, if we brought, you know, people in who were, you know, people of color or disabled or, you know, trans and non-binary mm-hmm. having them sing these sort of traditionally straight white mm-hmm. roles that somehow that would take away and so that we felt as though it was important in that charter to include a, an artistic statement mm-hmm. of belief where we were just like no by like opening this up we're actually like elevating the art that we're doing yeah. um by increasing our tent but you know i wonder you know, how you all react to this idea that like, you know, oh, the repertoire will be changed in some sort of adverse way, because that seems to be the big argument. And of course, I think, you know, I think it's Mm -hmm. BS. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, but I'm curious, you know, what, what your immediate reactions are as, you know, classical music. (laughs) Well, (laughs) <laughs> Savants. I, I'll say this um, with with my historian hat on, right? Um, mm-hmm. The even if the art doesn't change, society changes, right? And how we receive things mm-hmm. shifts, and also how we may wish to engage with things shifts. And and I think that one of the things that I I love so much about art is that it's not static. And as we move through the ways that we may wish to to think about the issues that are brought up with generative art like opera that you know definitionally is meant to be performed and then re-performed and then interpreted and reinterpreted by increasingly different and new groups we have to be nimble in terms of how we think about what the messaging is right so if you take something like madama butterfly where you know sort of unproblematically people have been presenting this piece for a hundred years in in yellow face casting whichever Mm. soprano who may wish to be cast in it. We are in a situation now where I think the conversation is, is there a version of Madama Butterfly that we can watch right now that can exist without um, a woman of Asian descent singing the lead role? Like, are we in any place where there is an appetite for that? 
and I can only answer that for myself, right? But I think the, the bigger answer is that this is a thing that may shift. The answer for today may not be the answer for 20 years from now, and it certainly isn't the answer from 20 years ago. And I think one of the things that we as, as people who appreciate art forms like this have to be prepared for is that this is something of a moving target, right? And in specific places, at specific times, the answer may be different. I know for me right now, I'm not interested in seeing a Madama butterfly that is not cast to reflect what was actually written, right? And I think what is written is that this is a story that is very much focused on a particular place and focused on a particular set of dynamics between different racialized groups. And I don't think it would make sense in an all-white pr production. I don't think it would make sense in an all-black production either. Where we may be 10 years from now could be totally different, right? And and maybe I would be a great choice for Chocho San 10 years from now. But at least for right now, I'm, I'm working on it in the shower. <laughs> give us a little, give us a little. <laughs> but I think that's the thing people aren't always comfortable hearing, right? That, that this is not something that it, there's an easy answer. And I think people frequently are looking to us to give them the silver bullet, right? The one thing they can say or do to give them the cover to be able to produce ways that may or may not be responsible. And I think that is not really what's happening right now. People are looking for companies to be accountable and thoughtful about what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree and <laughs> I I also want to say I think one way to well first let me lead with it's hard for me to <laughs> to sometimes like meet this this question or this conversation with with understanding <laughs> or with you know gentleness with for people who really really love the you know classic opera canon but I <laughs> it's tough because I just see myself so or rather I don't see myself in it yeah you know beyond um music that's beautiful and moving and there are even some stories that I really really love but there are new stories being created that I also love all the time <laughs> so <laughs> that and then that do you know more represent me or the kind of world I'd like to see or even if it displays a more yeah. dystopian or patriarchal or racist world it's aware that it's doing so <laughs> and, and has a message <laughs> and you know has a message about that so it's hard for me sometimes mm -hmm. because I want to be like I get it I get it but I'm also like man <laughs> make some new stuff like <laughs> Any, oh. There are so many people out here creating yes. beautiful music or beautiful stories and we'll continue to always. Like, that that's just what we, we do as yeah. humans. Like we cannot help it. So <laughs> that'll always be a thing. But I, I also get it with the, with the classic repertoire and why, you know, it has a place and, um, and what it says about our history also, um, can be interesting to me as a history nerd, as someone who loves the dramaturgy, yes. is all, all of that. Um, <laughs> and I think when it comes to like, you know, getting real experimental with the classics or, you know, subverting them, 
I'm I'm all for that, but only when it's led by mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. artists mm-hmm. from marginalized communities, artists from the communities that a piece impacts. I'm not trying to see white people remix <laughs> Madame Butterfly right now. I'm not. I'm not trying to see them remix Aida yeah. into something. Yeah. I'm because of those pieces, pieces have barely even yeah. seen. You know what happens when people of marginalized communities yeah. like yeah. get to yeah. produce them. We've barely seen what a, like all Asian creative team doing Butterfly. Yeah. Yeah. looks like and i'm sure it's been out there but like we need to increase the visibility yeah. there first I, so I you know yeah, if agree. we're gonna get wild with it like it needs to come <laughs> <to us. laughs> I agree because then you end up having situations where it's like you know we're gonna take was it faust and like have an all latinx cast and set it in like a detention center <laughs> like oh, at the border and it's like all of a sudden it's just like okay well we're just going to increase black and brown right. suffering right. um and put all of these you know black and brown bodies in yeah. degradation and it's just like yeah. no that's that that ends up being the yeah. default and i'm just i'm yeah. tired of it that's why we have this pure yeah. black joy segment at the yeah. end of our shows like i'm tired of seeing it i'm tired of seeing sort of this glorification of violence against mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. violence against yeah. us as yeah. black folks and people of color i'm sick of it and that ends up what i feel like whether it's physical violence or emotional yeah. violence i and i feel like that ends up being yeah. the default mm-hmm. and you know, you know, and I, I think about like, you know, why is it that, you know, yes, the music is beautiful. Yeah. You know, Don Giovanni is a beautiful piece, but it's yeah. about a rapist. And yes, he gets his just desserts yeah. at the end, but yeah. at the end mm. and throughout the entire rest of the piece, it's just this glorification of violence yeah. against women. Why are we OK with that in 2021? Yeah. Why would anyone not want to push back yeah. against that. And and I think that the, this is the thing, right? People are trying to figure out how do you push back, right? And how do you have conversations mm-hmm. around art that is inconsistent with our current values, right? When you want to take the art and be able to highlight the pieces of it that should be highlighted, right? The, the aesthetic qualities that you're interested in bringing to the fore, some of the messaging, and then what do you do with the rest of it? How do you talk about it, right? Because so many things are just locked in their own time. And, you know, where I sit, it doesn't mean we never do these things again. It instead means that we do them and we talk about why we're doing them. We talk about what is problematic. We don't run from it. We highlight this is part of the lesson that we need to be taking from this. This is where we can sort of exist in a space and and have some complicated conversations around what our values are. That to me is what is interesting about art. It pushes us to a place where we actually talk about what it is to be human, what it is to be flawed, but we don't have to sit in celebration of it. And, you know, not to get on like a crazy tangent, but like that was my thing when Hamilton came out a couple of years ago and, and like being trained as, as an historian of, of like people of color here in America, like I had a lot to say about like the unproblematic presentation of these black and Latinx men, you know, sort of celebrating these 
people who were slaveholders and in mm. some instances mm. rapists yep. and and you know the whole nine sort of unproblematically right you know whatever else George Washington did that was amazing he is also someone who spent like the last 15 years of his life trying to get back a young black woman named Una Judge who was a slave mm-hmm. of his who ran away and escaped and legally had the right not to be reclaimed, right? And that's the thing that I am very interested in talking about if we're going to have a yeah. very talented black man playing the role of George Washington. Like, I can't separate those things. I can still take uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's really thoughtful, beautiful work and celebrate the pieces of it that should be celebrated, but at no point do I want to pretend like I think Alexander Hamilton is any kind of hero, despite the fact that there's a statue of him on the campus of my college, you know, like, I still feel like I really (laughs) want to have that whole conversation. And I would want to do that, even if this were, you know, a piece about a, a, a queer black man, like, I would still want to, you know, push back on any kind of, like, valoration of, of things that that person may have done that were negative. Like, this is not something that I think is, you know, confined to how we have to look at white men right now. I think this is what art is about, right? Thinking about the the multitude of things that make us human, good, bad, or indifferent. And I hope we can do more, like, as an art form, as, as people who are in opera, to, to really push the fact that this is a piece now of presenting works irrespective of what they are we we do need to talk about what it is that we're we're putting on and what we're seeing and what kids are going to take away young people who don't necessarily have the you know historical frameworks or the the experience to to see something and then watch Don Giovanni and and be able to have some kind of critique about like the the gender dynamics that are very very present to some of the rest of us Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and we're back, everyone. It's time for our last segment of our first show. Yay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it feels like history. Oh my goodness. We're going to come back to this like when we're seasoned podcasters, season 37. You're like, oh, listen to when we were little babies, little baby podcasters. <laughs> but we like to end the show on a note of pure black joy, PB&J, a little snack for your soul. And... <laughs> You know, we just want to highlight um, Black people, organizations um, who are doing really great things and who are just making us happy and share that happiness with all of you. So, Lee, I'll turn it over to you for this week's PB&J. Yeah. So this is something that I actually just read about a few days ago. Um, There's a a man named Thaddeus Miles, an African-American gentleman in the Boston area who is actually... Um, the director of housing services, I believe, at Mass Housing. Um, and he has launched what is called the Black Joy Project, which oh. originated when he sent a picture of him and four friends, all of whom are African-American gentlemen, just laughing. Like, they were clearly in the middle of a conversation, and I feel like it's the thing that I have seen a million times. It reminds me of, like, seeing my dad chatting with his friends about things back in the day and they're just all laughing right and he just started about maybe a year ago 
emailing the picture around to other folks, just sharing it because it was one of those things, right? That when you see it, you can't help but smile. And it sort of launched <laughs> this whole project where other folks are doing similar things. And there's actually like a photo contest associated with like, who's capturing the most interesting expressions of black joy. And like, I've seen a couple of them and they did nothing but make me happy. And I Aww. feel like Aww. considering how much we really have to sit with black suffering it coming from a variety of of fronts right and and i do think it's an important thing that we really do have to talk about in our country because it is part of the black black experience but it's not the only part right no, and those absolutely not exactly and those moments where you can see something that part of being black is having a lot of fun right enjoying yourself <laughs> sharing all kinds of things with other people who recognize things about the experience and and see so many things in our culture to celebrate and it, well that's why everybody wants our stuff <laughs> our food our clothes our music yeah <laughs> it's super fun <laughs> yeah I, it's lit exactly you know i <laughs> i used to have this this shirt 20 pounds ago um, that said, I love being black. And I would, I don't even need to find it. I have no idea where the shirt is. If I find it, it would be totally inappropriate <laughs> at, at this level. But one of the things that I used to love wearing that shirt, because I would put it on and other black people, just as I'm passing in Harlem, would smile or point or frequently say, where'd you get that shirt? And, and I think that anytime there are these things that come up that are just reminders of the fact that being black, whatever else it entails, it is a tremendous amount of fun. I love black people. I love being around black people. Living in Harlem for the last 20 years has been such a joy. And, you know, I am really going to be seeking out a lot more of these kinds of things like that are just pure expressions of the other side of being black that I feel like isn't regularly captured by journalists. Right. So I encourage mm -hmm. everybody to look this up and to celebrate what Mr. Miles has done, because I think, you know, it's a, it's a really awesome thing, especially considering some of what's happened in the last couple of years, just to see like a pure unadulterated and kind of unexplained expression of black people being happy. Aww. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of a viral tweet I saw one time that said, I love being black. It's kind of dangerous, but it's fun. <laughs> 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 yeah and i think it i think it's just so important you know i i feel like around the time that 12 years a slave came out i said to myself that like i just can't do this anymore yeah. i can't go into a theater and i just can't yeah. watch black people black bodies yeah. just get destroyed yeah. anymore and that's part of you know my whole sort of approach to 2021 where i'm I've given up alcohol and refined sugars and I'm working out <laughs> as much as possible because like I want to I want to destroy white supremacy. I don't want to destroy myself. How about anymore that? With all of those yeah. things. Um, and so I just think it's such a beautiful thing yeah. to be able to put that out into the world, yeah. just black joy and black laughter and black excitement. And I think it's a big part of like why the three of us are here in this space and why I'm so excited. Yeah. There's that word again, um, <laughs> to be doing this with the two of you, because it brings, it brings me pure black joy. Yes, absolutely. 
Aww, the feeling's mutual. <laughs> well, I think, why don't we end this on a high note? <laughs> this virtual group hug. <laughs> and thank you all so much for joining us for our first episode. I hope you will join us for many, many more. We will be back in two weeks um, for more of this yes. <laughs> conversations mm-hmm. about being uh, people of color. Um, in these uh, predominantly white opera classical music spaces and bringing you these moments of pure black joy. And I can't wait to see where this journey and this conversation takes us. Absolutely. So (laughs) thanks again. Make sure that you subscribe, leave a comment so that other folks can find us. Uh, give us a rating, whatever all those other things that people say on, on podcasts <laughs> at the end. <laughs> I will write this down next time. <laughs> Not try to do this off the dome. Um, but thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.